we'll leave. I'll pray for Peter first. Father God, we just thank you for Peter. We pray you be with him now as he comes up uh, with you, uh, and read your word to us. And Father, we just pray you bless him at this time and you give him the right words to say to us. And for, for, Father God, for ourselves, we pray that, uh, the open, you, that you'll open the ears and eyes of our heart that we might hear and see you in a new way today. And that each one of us will go away with something special. Every person here today, not one person is here by accident, all here for a reason. Lord Jesus, we pray that you speak to each person here today. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Maybe the other half of the congregation would like to leave as well. It's a great joy to be back with you. I've almost had withdrawal symptoms. Uh, Almost. Had a very busy July preaching at various places. And I'm really delighted to be back with you this morning. We're going to read from Colossians chapter 3. We'll read from verses 1 to 11. Though I doubt if we'll get through the whole of the passage today, I will follow it up next week. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your heart on things above, for Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died. And your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk on these ways in the life you once lived, But now you must rid yourself of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, Barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. And that last statement is really the theme of this passage, as we'll see as we go through it this morning. Because Paul's concerned to to write to these people whom he had never met to write to them about the glories of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the whole of the epistle is full of aspects of who the Lord is and what his life and death actually means to us. And here he moves into the theme of resurrection life. The first four verses of the chapter is very much concerned with that. And just in in general we should always remember that the resurrection and the ascension of the Lord Jesus are indissolubly linked. 
The fact that God raised him from the dead and that he was left here for 40 days to demonstrate that he was alive was sublimated by his ascension when he went into glory. I can remember some years ago listening to Derek Prince preach on the ascension for four nights and emphasizing again and again just how important it was that Christ ascended into heaven. Because if he be not there, then he cannot intercede for us. And one of the central teachings about his time and glory right now is his intercession for you and me. He continually prays for us. That's a great encouragement, isn't it? Because he knows all about us, and yet he continues to pray for us. He always intercedes and that is linked back to this whole question of his resurrection. But the resurrection is not just a fact in the life of the Lord Jesus, but it is to be demonstrated in us that we have actually died to our old way of life and have been raised to walk in newness of life, which is indicated by our baptism. So I want to uh, really just emphasize that in these first four verses, and we look carefully at what the Apostle Paul says here. Since then you have been raised with Christ. In other words, when we came to face in the Lord Jesus, we actually became part of his risen experience because we died to our old selves and we have now been raised to walk in newness of life, as Paul says to the Romans in chapter 6. But because that is the case, then there are certain things which have to follow and he uses two phrases here. He says in verse 1, you're to set your heart on things above. And then he begins verse 2 by saying, set your mind on things above. And I'm going to suggest to you that the question of having our heart set on things above has got to do with our emotional life. The bit of us that feels. And whenever you and I feel bad, we need to recognize that there's someone in glory who feels good. And we're to live in the awareness of that. We're to have our hearts, our affections set firmly upon the Lord Jesus. But it's not a, a vapid emotional experience. We are also to have our minds set on things above. And I don't know about you, but I can remember years ago, People saying in a derogatory way, oh, he's so heavenly-minded, he's of no earthly good. Maybe you've heard that expression in the past. Actually, nothing could be further from the truth. Because the more heavenly-minded we are, the more like Christ we will become, and the more like him we are, the more use we'll be while we're here on earth. But it is a, a, a discipline of heart and mind if I'm going to set my heart on things above, if my affections are going to be truly linked to the Lord Jesus, and my mind is truly firm in trying to do that which he would have me do, then the, the life which I now live in Christ is very precious. And you'll recognize immediately when he's talking about things above that he's talking about the ascended Christ. And that's why I emphasized at the beginning this whole question of the ascension being linked to his resurrection. But you'll notice something else here. 
We are to seek or set our minds on things above, not on earthly things. I'm sure you're not like me because you're, you're much more disciplined than I am. But sometimes I go part of the day without actually thinking about the Lord Jesus at all. And sometimes, even in my preparation, I'm so taken up with the preparation that I'm doing that I don't think so much about the need for the Lord's help as I should. And this is a a very clear series of statements here. If I'm going to be of use to the Lord Jesus, then my mind and heart has to be dominated by him. It has to be constantly linking to him. And if your mind is taken up with just these earthly things, then you'll find yourself drifting away from him, inevitably. If I don't think about Jill for much of the day, then she'll say, what are you thinking about? You know, you haven't talked to me for the last two hours. And I said, well, nothing sensible to say. That's usually the case. But, you know, I know what she's saying. There has to be this constancy of communication and there has to be this sharing of life if my marriage is going to work. And it's the same in relation to my Christian life. It's got to be focused upon Christ, self-evidently. That has to be part of my ongoing experience. And then again, we're reminded that Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And you sort of think to yourself, well, why do you put that in there, Paul? What's the significance of saying that? Well, the right hand of God is the place of authority. And, you know, the, the thought of the right hand is something which is prevalent in Scripture as far as God's concerned. I'm very glad to know he's right handed. There are some of you who are less blessed than that because you're left-handed. But it's really the thought of strength and authority being in the right hand of God. And the fact that Christ is seated there means that God is completely satisfied with the work which he has done on the cross and in his resurrection and ascension. He's comfortable in that position, seated on the throne. And then Paul says, for you died. For you died. You've been raised with Christ, but in order to be raised with Christ, you died. It's an unequivocal statement. It just lies there boldly. But it's an important statement for you and I to grasp in a real way. Whenever we came to faith in Christ, we had done with our old way of life because we repented of our sin and turned away from it, which is what repentance means. It means to turn away from and to turn towards. So we turned away from our old way of life and we recommitted or we committed our lives in a fresh way to the God of glory. You died There's no call for each of us to go back to the way of life we once lived. Indeed, for many of us, it has got no attraction anymore in a real sense. You've died. And then this great phrase, your life is now hidden with Christ in God. A double rampart. Some people try to preserve their lives. And we have an instinct for self-preservation. 
But sometimes there's a call upon our living and we, we disregard that and, and perhaps risk our lives in order to rescue someone from the sea or, or whatever it is because we're in the right place at the right time and, and that's what we do. I can remember when our first child, Sarah Lee, was about three years old that she was absolutely fearless on the beach and did daft things. But there was a river ran down into the beach which was deep and quite fast flowing. And uh, she didn't recognize where the river started and the sort of beach ended. So she was running along the beach and laughing back over her shoulder at Jill and I. And she ran straight into the deep water. And the only thing that was visible was her hair. And I can remember going straight into the water and grasping her by her hair. And the water by then was up to my chest, I suppose. And fishing her out. And she was shocked. But about five minutes later she was laughing as usual. Never had a lot of sense. But, you know, this whole scenario, the overriding instinct is not to protect your life. If that be your thinking tonight, today, let, let me just re-emphasize. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. It can't be touched until both of them allow it to be touched. Does that make sense? Your life is hidden with Christ in God. It has a double rampart around it. That's why whenever you become a Christian, you can't be saved one minute and lost the next. Because your life is now in control of someone else. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, so Christ living so much in you and me, Christ himself is recognized as our life. It's he who gives us the life that we have in God. It's he who is the source of the life that we have in God. Why then try to protect it and and shelter it? Allow it to express itself. Because when Christ who is your life shall appear, you also shall appear with him in glory. I refer often to the five missionaries who were martyred in Ecuador in 1956. You may have heard of some of them, Jim Elliot and Nate Saint and Roger Uderian. You know, the, the fact that they were prepared to give their lives in order to take the message of the gospel to the Oka Indians in South America, they didn't, they didn't weigh their lives and say, well, we have to protect them. They said, our lives are with Christ, so we have to share the gospel of God with these head-hunting Oka Indians. And the five of them were slain a week after they had made contact with them. And people said, what a waste. What a waste. Not recognizing that the Oka tribe was going to come to faith in Christ through the ministry of the wives of those missionaries. And Elizabeth Elliot and Marjorie Saint were were greatly used by God in in bringing about 85% of the tribe to faith. So to try to protect this, which is wholly protected by the Father, and which one day is going to demonstrate itself in glory when Christ returns, it's foolish, isn't it? You know, we're not really under threat in this country at the moment as far as our faith, as far as our lives are concerned, for our faith But it may happen within your lifetime. 
if we read the signs aright. And there are places in the country at the moment where to speak openly of the name of Christ, you come under real threat. But Paul said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. For me to live is Christ and whenever I die it's even better because I'm going to be with him forever. And it's to live life from that perspective that the Apostle's talking about here. Having our mindset change and having our hearts truly enraptured with the Lord Jesus so that we may express this to him in a real way. But then there are practicalities that arise from that and, and things which have to come to pass in our own living. The, the word here is mortify, put to death, therefore. In view of all this, in view of the fact that you're now living a new life in Christ and, and he's in control of it and he has the shaping of it and in fact he is our very life, then demonstrate that uh, by putting to death or mortifying those things in your earthly nature. And he mentions five things here. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed. The word is to actively deaden. To actively deaden. So when your mind begins to stray into these areas, then you put them to death. Now, the word is used in three ways in ancient Greek. It's used first by, of putting to death weeds. Now, I won't ask you, Roy, how you do that. I won't embarrass you by asking you. But I know that the, the weed threatens the life of the plant by drawing sustenance from the soil that the weed, uh, the plant would otherwise have. And you don't like weeds growing in your garden. At least I hope you don't if you have a garden and it's anyway productive. So you get rid of the weeds. And you do that by pulling them up by actually shredding them. It's also used of getting rid of vermin in ancient Greece to mortify, to put to death the vermin that would otherwise spoil life. And it's also used in warfare of putting to death of an enemy, an enemy, not an enemy, to putting to death an enemy. And, you know, this... The reality of what Paul is saying is, look, these things will threaten your life. If you dwell with sexual immorality in your thinking, then it will, it will make, a difference, it'll make a difference in your life for Christ. If you have impurity in your thoughts, if you're lusting after something, whether it be money or, or goods or a person, evil desires and greed, then those things are becoming idols in your life and you have to set them aside. And he just says, in a sight, because of these, the wrath of God is coming. And when you used to live in these ways, you used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived. It was part of your experience. It was part of the essence of your being. But then he broadens it and he says, but now you must rid yourself of all such things as these. Anger, rage, malice slander and filthy language from your lips. These statements are almost all to do with what we say. So you need to recognize that these have got no place. You're not to be angry. That's in the sense of an anger which is out of control. That's a rage. 
You don't have malice. You don't look at somebody and say, well, I'm going to spoil their reputation. You're not going to slander them. You're not going to de- demonstrate f- filthy language. So you're going to put these things to death or rid yourself of. And he actually uses a term which is normally used for clothing. Uh, I had to hunt out a coat this morning because it was pouring a rain when I got in the car at home. And it took me about three or four minutes to remember where I left it. And then I didn't remember, I just came across it. But, you know, when I, before I went out into the rain, I put it on. When I got in the car, I took it off. And the word which he uses is that image. Rid yourself off. Get rid of such things by, by just taking, taking them off like a garment. So when you have a temptation to be angry or to rage then it's necessary to make an active decision to lay them aside. And he uses the active verb here, as you can see in in our reading. You must rid yourself of all such things as these. Take them off. So the next time you're feeling angry, bite your tongue. But then deliberately lay it out before the Lord and say, Lord, I'm I'm really sorry. I was going to be angry and make statements that I shouldn't have made. Get rid of them because they're not uh, pertinent to the Christian life. Put them away as removing a garment. And then he says this, and I want to emphasize this this morning. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old life with this practices and have put on the new self. Lying was the, the cause of the first sin. You'll remember the implication of Satan in the Garden of Eden. Has God said? God knows that if you eat of the fruit of that tree, you'll become like God's. God's a spoil sport. And effectively, what Satan was doing was lying. And the temptation arose from the lie. <coughs> And Eve looked and saw the fruit was good for food, and she took off the tree and ate. And incidentally, it wasn't an apple tree. It was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But, you know, there's always a temptation to lie. My father used to tell a story, quite a funny story, about a preacher who came to preach in the old hall at Scrabble, where I was brought up. And he was prone to exaggeration. And he had a preaching partner, and the two of them used to go around and and preach together. And he recognized this as a failing in his own preaching. And he said to his preaching partner, he said, the next time I start to exaggerate on the platform, will you just whistle softly? Just whistle. And I'll know I'm exaggerating, and I'll stop. And he was preaching about Samson, tying together the fox's tails and releasing them when he set fire to them into the Philistines' corn. And he said, the, the fox's tails, you know, they were, they were marvelous tails. They were six foot long. And there was a quiet whistle from the front row. And he was a bit taken aback, but recognized it was exaggerating. And he said, well, they were at least five foot long. And there was another quiet whistle from the front And he said to his preaching partner, he said, you can whistle all night. I'm not taking another inch of those foxes' tails. 
Exaggeration is lying. I've told you a thousand times not to do that. You wouldn't say that, Ruth, would you? No. But, you know, you have this, to, to recognize each of this, each of these aspects of character have no place in the Christian living. And the number of reputations that have been destroyed within churches by lying. You know, I remember one instance in my own home church, and I remember someone saying, I know what so-and-so was thinking when you did that, when she did that. And my father immediately said to the lady, you don't. You don't. You don't know what the motivation was when that particular person did that. You don't know what she was thinking. She probably didn't even know what she was thinking herself. But, you know, the reality of this is that it's these things, these slants within Christian behavior that cause difficulties and heartache and sometimes despair. If I may refer to something a little bit closer to home. There was two great friends in a church quite near here. And just before Easter, they decided to get new clothing for their daughters. Daughters were about the same age. And one lady went into Marks and Sparks and bought a particular outfit for her daughter. And the particular Sunday before Easter, when her friend wasn't there, her daughter appeared in this resplendent garment, which had been purchased in Marks and Spencer's. Unknown to her, the other lady who was her best friend went to Marks and Spencer's and bought the same outfit for her daughter, which appeared the following Sunday in the church. And the first lady went up to the second lady and she said, although she was her best friend, she said, why did you copy that and buy your daughter the same outfit as I bought my daughter last Sunday? And the first lady said, I didn't even know your daughter had that same outfit. I wasn't here last Sunday. And the second woman refused to believe. She assumed that her best friend was lying. They didn't speak to each other for 11 years. Can you imagine what that did to the fellowship? Absolute nonsense. But so pertinent. I thought you lied. But you hadn't lied. So don't lie to one another since you've taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self. And again, he uses the same image as he's used earlier in the passage about putting on, about putting on as a garment. You put it on as clothing. Now, when you get up in the morning, it would be a good thing to remind yourself and myself of such things. I'm actually a Christian. I'm, I'm living as a Christian today. And I've got to demonstrate that in the practical things in my Christian life. So to be heavenly minded and have an awareness of Christ from day to day is is significant as far as this concerned. You're a new creation, and lying is foreign to our new nature. It's being created in knowledge, in the image of its creator. Knowledge there has got both senses. It's knowledge in the sense of knowing about 
the way we can know about something. And it's not knowledge in the sense of knowing oneself. You're actually growing in knowledge of the Creator. It's interesting, isn't it, that, that Paul uses the word creation here. It's, it's important to recognize when he's dealing with a new person in Christ that we are a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come, as he says, as he says elsewhere. And we become, an, become a new person, created in, in the image of the Lord Jesus. We're not exactly like him, but we have the potential to grow more like him day by day. A new creation in Christ. And I close with this great statement that comes here in verse 11. Here, that is, in the new creation, there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. So there are no racial divisions. The greatest division in the ancient world, and perhaps, according to recent newspaper reports, still prevalent in our society, was between the Greek and the Jew. The Jew was proud of himself because he had had the revelation of God in the Old Testament. The Greek or the barbarian, the non-Jew, was jealous of the fact of the, the Jewish privilege. And it, it caused a great division in the ancient world, only laid aside in Christ. There are no racial divisions in Christ. There are no religious or practice of religious divisions in Christ because there is no circumcision or uncircumcision. It's not seen as a division, even though it was prevalent in the ancient society. There is no national division. There is no Scythian or barbarian. And there is no bond or free. There is no social division in the Christian heritage. If you go back a century and a half and look at the American Civil War, you'll find that one of the reasons for it was to release the slave, the black slave, from his master in the southern states. It wasn't the only reason, but it was used as an excuse. And more men died in the American Civil War than died in any war previous to that up until the Second, the First World War. An incredible number of men died to deliver the slave from his bondage. Indeed, if you look at each of these things, they caused such major divisions in the ancient world that there was no reconciliation possible. But if Christ is all and in all, none of these divisions exist. I can remember the first time that I met a, a black Christian. It was in Aberdeen, of all places. I, I, I got to know him really well. I remember the first time I met a Chinese Christian, and that was also in Aberdeen. I got to know them really well. I remember the first time that I really got to know Indian Christians. That was also in Aberdeen, in the multicultural church that I was part of. And these divisions didn't exist and don't exist. And my brother Ebenezer, 
uh, comes from Zambia and I meet him, I greet him as I, as I would any of you because he's my brother. There, there is no fragmentation in Christ because Christ is all and in all. So Christ is part of the experience of those who were once from a different race, a different nationality, of a different persuasion. But in Christ they are my brother and my sister. And because Christ is all and in them as he is in you, therefore there is no further division. And we are linked indissolubly in the Lord Jesus. And we get the glory uh, prior to what some think. There will actually be no particular place for brethren churches. They will all be linked with every other Christian that ever lived. That's a bit of a fright, isn't it? But to recognize this as part of the reality... We are all one in Christ. He restores us to God as as a living whole. What What a blessedness is achieved through his resurrection and ascension. And when we get to glory, the the lack of division will be totally demonstrated because there will be this essence of oneness, which is part of your experience. The first time I went to Romania, I didn't know anybody. And I was actually being taken into the into the country uh, from a guy who with a guy who lived in Budapest, and his name was Shandor Bajorski. and Shandor uh, worked on the railways all his life in Romania. He had a withered arm; his left arm was non-functional, but uh, he was such a dear brother. And uh, he said to me when I when I got to. Hungary and, and, and met him in Budapest for the first time. He said, my car's outside, you're going to have to drive it. He said, my daughter delivered it, and you're going to have to drive it. And I said, well, uh, has it not been adapted for your use? And he, he said, no. He said, it requires two hands. I don't know, have any of you ever driven in Romania? There are more holes than there are roads, in the roads, you know. It is something else and I arrived in Budapest at 8 o'clock at night pitch dark and Shandor said we're going to drive to Romania and we spent the night driving through Hungary and, and into Romania and we arrived at Oradia just inside the Romanian border and he said we're going to stop here for tea and I said oh, that sounds good I haven't had any tea since I left Heathrow so we stopped and went into this big yard and went into this home. And there were all sorts of cheeses and meats and black bread and, uh, and so on on the table. And I ate heartily, as I usually do. Shandor ate heartily as well. We got back in the car about half past one to continue our journey to Cluj-Napoco in Transylvania. And Shandor said to me quietly, he said, did you enjoy your food? I said, I did I have what was really, really delicious. He said, we've just eaten a week's rations. I stopped the car. I said, I thanked them, but I didn't know what it meant. He said, if you had eaten sparingly, they would have been disgusted. Oneness in Christ. Driving a car I didn't know. From a man I didn't know. 
into a country I didn't know, the Christian brothers and sisters that I'd never met. And they spoiled me rotten for the three weeks I was there. It's real. Oneness in Christ is real. Christ is all and is in all. The Lord bless you. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we sit at your feet and thank you again for your word. And We pray that you will root it in our hearts, that we be different people tomorrow than we've been today, and that we'll become more like the Lord Jesus, that we'll lay aside malice and ill feeling, that we'll recognize your hand in our lives in so many ways. We thank you for it. And we ask in your grace and, and for your glory that we're more like the Lord Jesus tomorrow than we've been today. We commit our lives to you. Thank you that they're hidden you. Thank you for all that you have done in Christ. We acknowledge you as Father and lay our lives before you in Jesus' name. Amen.